I grew up outside of town. And that's just a kind way of saying I grew up really far out in the country. Uh, just to give you an idea, our nearest neighbors lived across a cow pasture and a two-lane dirt road. Their names were the Drywaters. They spoke English with a distinct Cherokee accent because the primary language spoken in the home was Cherokee. Their pest control regimen included and really probably consisted entirely of running guinea chickens in their yard to, as they told us, to keep the ticks down. That's where I grew up. My nearest buddy, my nearest friend, Kevin Webster, who's now a Pentecostal holiness preacher, um, who at 55 has about horsed himself out of a voice, but I digress. Anyway, he's a, my best friend, he lived about three miles from me, and, and that was me walking the dirt roads to get to his house. My other friend, Dusty Odell, <laughs> um, I could get to his house a little quicker if I cut through the woods. Um, we went through, we went to a, a K through 8 school, um, and so I, I have participated in an 8th grade graduation, um, and all of that stuff, and uh, it was pretty great. I'm just going to tell you, it, it was really pretty great. I knew it was different, I knew it was different than how other people lived, but it was great. But when I moved to town, when all of us graduated eighth grade and went to high school in town, um, I began to realize just how different it really, really was. I, I was an outsider. I, I didn't feel like I belonged. Now, I, I don't want to say to you, I don't want you to think, you know, uh, that it was a really sad little existence for me. I mean, I was happy and I had friends and I kept my nose out of trouble, did well in school and all that, so don't, don't feel bad for me. It's just that I never felt like high school was my place. I felt like high school belonged to other people because my home wasn't in town. Well, last week we began studying the book of 1 Peter, and we learned at the outset that our home isn't here. In fact, Peter uses a key word to describe that disconnect we have from the world. It's the world, it's the word exile. It means that once we give our life to Jesus Christ, we are removed from belonging in a real sense to the world that we have always known as home and become people who are passing through it, who are strangers in it, heading for another place. And that means that if you give your life to Jesus in this world, you will be different. It means that you will have a different kind of worldview and that there will be times when that worldview puts you at odd with everyone around you. And it also means perhaps most significantly that that in which you trust, that in which you hope will be fundamentally different. When I was preparing this message, I read an article in my just kind of normal reading that I do in the morning, just looking at various things from the Atlantic, and it was written by a retired Presbyterian pastor named Tim Keller. Tim Keller in this last year has been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and I think we all know how significant that kind of diagnosis can be. And after a year of reflecting on it, he penned this article, and there was a key section in it that uh, I want to call your attention to. He says, since my diagnosis, Kathy, his wife, Kathy and I have come to see that the more we tried to make a heaven out of this world, 
the more we grounded our comfort and security in it, the less we were able to enjoy it. When we turn good things into ultimate things, when we make them our greatest consolations and loves, they will necessarily disappoint us bitterly. Thou hast made us for thyself, Augustine said in his most famous sentence, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. To our surprise and encouragement, Kathy and I have discovered that the less we attempt to make this world into a heaven, the more we are able to enjoy it. And then he says this, which for my money is the best sentence I've read in a long time. He says, no longer are we burdening the world with demands impossible for it to fulfill. His diagnosis put him in a place where he was able to really for the first time appreciate the hope of an exile. It's not here, it's elsewhere. And if we realize that our hope, that in which we trust, isn't here but elsewhere, it will actually increase the joy we experience in this world. I want to give you a great statement. It's great because I didn't think of it. Pastor Micah thought of this. It embarrassed me that he came up with something so great, and I didn't. It really bothered me. But here's what he said. As we thought about what we are about to read, and as I reflected on what Tim Keller had written, he says, an exile, you and me, because of our faith in Jesus, an exile's hope in the future and joy in the present is because of what Jesus did in the past. An exile's hope in the future and joy in the present is because of what Jesus did in the past. And we are about to learn that in 1 Peter. Would you stand, please, as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. May God add a blessing to the reading of His Word. You may be seated. There are two key anchor points, one dealing with the future, one dealing with the present, that are, are revealed to us in this text. So if you're a note taker, here's the first thing to write down. An exile's hope is in a future inheritance. An exile's hope is in a future inheritance. And that comes to us through verses 3 and 5. But before we start looking at it, let me just acknowledge something. I understand that when you are reading God's Word and you come to a very rich, deep theological section, which verses 3 through 5 are, 
that all of those words can start to feel a little like word salad. Just a lot of random words and terms, borderline unintelligible terms, and you, as you read it, kind of begin to feel defeated. You, you know it says something. You know it says something good, but you have a hard time really knowing what it is that it is saying that is so good. And so let me give you the best Bible reading tip that I can possibly give you. Here it is, very deep. Relax. Everybody just relax when you're reading and look for patterns that exist that can help you organize those verses that are giving you difficulty. If you do that with verses 3 through 5, a pattern emerges. You can see that Peter is blessing God, praising God for the mercy that God has shown him in being born again to three things. The first is in verse 3, to a living hope. The second is in verse 4, to an inheritance. And the third is in verse 5, a salvation. He is blessing God. He is praising God for the mercy that God has shown him in giving him a living hope, in giving him an inheritance, and in giving him a salvation. So let's take those piece by piece so we can see what it is that he is praising God for. First, a living hope. The word living obviously communicates uh, something that is active and, and something that is dynamic, something that is not static but real, something that is tangible, not imagined. So he is saying that Christ has given him something real, active, tangible, but in a way that is missing to us a little bit in uh, bringing this word from Peter's language into ours is the idea of fullness. So he says he has been given from Jesus, a, being born again, to something that is full, but he packages it with the word hope. And so that by default communicates the idea that this thing which is living and, and active and real and tangible hasn't yet reached its full expression. So he's looking forward and he's saying, I've been given something living. It's pretty great now. But there is something more to come. That is my hope. I am as an exile praising God for the mercy that he has given me something that makes an impact now but reaches its full expression later, looking ahead. Then he says he is blessing God, uh, praising him for the mercy he has shown him and being born again to an inheritance, an inheritance. Now that word in Peter's mind communicated something differently than what it might communicate to you and I. You see, Peter was uh, raised in the tradition of Judaism. And for him, the word inheritance didn't uh, refer to some money handed down at someone's death, but it actually referenced the land that the people of Israel were given after their wilderness wanderings. I just recently finished uh, reading the book of uh, Joshua in my devotional reading, and let me just let you in on a little secret. After about halfway through, after a lot of the killing is over in that book, you get to kind of a, a yawn part of it because you see, okay, now after all the land had been subdued, 
Joshua gathered the people and he said, the land that belongs from here to here, and you don't know where here is or here is, and from here to here, and I don't know where here is to here is, is given to this particular tribe and you don't know who they are. But the Jews would have read that with the same kind of care and joy that we Christians read the end of the book of Revelation when heaven is being described. Because for them, that land that they had been given represented a tangible expression of God keeping his promise made centuries before to Abraham to take his descendants to a land to give it to them and make them a great nation. And Peter is thinking about that when he uses the word inheritance, but because he has been born again in Christ, he also has started to see that that inheritance actually prefigured something greater. It prefigured the heavenly country. It prefigured that place where we are all headed as exiles. This is not our home. Very much like the people of Israel, we're wandering through this world, facing battles here and there, never really belonging any place where we put our foot, but we are headed to God's ultimate promise for us. And just like the land of Israel represented, and the author of Hebrews brings this out, rest for Israel Heaven represents for us rest from the trials of living an exile life. And then Peter starts to do something that biblical writers do. He just starts kind of throwing words at at a concept like inheritance. And so he says in verse 4 that this inheritance is imperishable, it's undefiled, and unfading. I read this quote when I was doing my study. Again, I can say it's great because I didn't come up with it. One author said that this inheritance that is being given to us is death-proof, sin-proof, and time-proof. It means that when we get to this land, unlike the people of Israel, we will never die. When we get to this land, unlike the people of Israel, we will no longer battle sin. When we get to this land, unlike the people of of Israel who were eventually displaced from the land, we will never, ever leave. And he says the reason we can take that to the bank is because it's being guarded in heaven for us. So he's got a lot to praise God for already. He's saying, I bless you, God, for the mercy you've shown me in being born again to a living hope. Pretty great right now. It's going to get better. I praise you, God, for the mercy you've shown me in being born again to an inheritance, a place where I'm going. I don't belong here, but I'm headed a place that's awesome. And then in verse 5, he gives that same kind of praise to God for the mercy that God has shown him in being born again for a salvation. Now, in the modern world, salvation is something that almost exclusively means for Christians uh, an add-on to our life. In other words, what does it mean to be saved? We, We all but reflexively define being saved as going to heaven when we die. That it's an add-on, we're going to live our life and do our thing, but then we go to heaven one of these days. But the root of the word salvation communicates the idea of rescue. And bear in mind, Peter is looking ahead here to the future, and he's thinking of his salvation in terms of rescue. Rescue from what? Rescue from the final judgment. Before the heavenly country is ours, there will be a final judgment of the world, and it will pass away 
and then a new heaven and a new earth will be given to us. And the reason that we will not experience the judgment is because God has shown us mercy and being born again to a salvation that rescues us from that judgment. So he's super pumped about what is to come. But what is the basis of all of it? Remember, remember I said that Micah said that an exile's hope in the future is in what Jesus did in the past. That's back in verse 3. All of this is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How can Peter be so confident That this thing that's pretty great right now is only going to get better. That this world we're traveling through will end in our heavenly destination. And that before that comes and judgment falls, we will be rescued or saved from it. How can he be so certain? Because of the certainty of Christ's resurrection from the dead. Salvation through Christ's resurrection is not a metaphor for something. Christ's resurrection for Peter wasn't a symbol of us overcoming the trials of life and defeat. For Peter, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was an historical event that he remembered. He had been there on Good Friday and seen the Savior die. And he had been to the empty tomb and seen the grave clothes collapsed in on themselves. And then that Jesus who rose from the dead into the book of John cooked him breakfast one morning. For him, the resurrection wasn't some idea. It was something that really, really happened. And so the key for us as exiles going through this world to have that same kind of confidence in what is to come goes back to us making sure we really believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That he is really alive now. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if the resurrection didn't happen, we above all people are to be pitied. He shoves all of his cards to the middle of the table and says the reason we've got anything is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the first thing that an exile hopes in is a future inheritance that is guaranteed by what Jesus did in the past. And then the second anchor point that we have is this. An exile's hope is in a present joy. A present joy. Now this comes to us in verses 6 through 9, so let's just take them bit by bit so we can see exactly what he's doing. And I just want you to observe um, how Peter is kind of on a joy overdose uh, in these verses. He's just jamming the concept of joy in in a lot of different places. Right off the bat, in this you rejoice. In this you rejoice in the salvation to be revealed in the last time, to follow his logic. In this you rejoice... Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. He says, you can rejoice now in this future inheritance, even though right now you're going through various trials. Difficulty in context that is a direct result of their exile from the world and faith in Jesus Christ. So, 
you can rejoice right now in what you have awaiting you, even when you're facing the trials of being an exile. Then he goes on, so that the testedness or the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is he saying there? He's saying that as an exile who will at times experience difficulty and trial as a direct result of my faith in Jesus, of not belonging, when those experience, I can have joy even in the midst of that because I know that that which is really mine in the first place, Jesus, and the hope he has for me in the future, is simply being refined and tested and strengthened in the midst of it so that our story in the midst of a trial isn't really our story, but it is a testimony to the goodness of Jesus in the midst of our trial. There have been three times in my life that I would point to where I went through distinct trial. Two of them were the direct result of me doing my best as I understood at the time to be faithful to what God was saying to me. And they were miserable, miserable, miserable experiences. But I would not, for a second, want any one of them excised from my life. Because those trials that were miserable that I would never want to relive, that were the result of me doing my best to be faithful to God, strengthened my connection with Jesus like nothing else could have. They lashed me deeply to Jesus. I am nowhere near the follower of Jesus I need to be, but I'm much further down the road than I could have been had those trials not come my way. So even in the midst of that, I was able to have an understanding that, you know what, God, you're being so good to me right now that the story of perseverance in the midst of this trial isn't my story, it's yours. It is to your praise, and it is to your glory. And then he continues. Um, He says in verse 8, Though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. See how he's packing joy in there? Rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your soul. See, there he's talking about how he had joy in the midst of the the trials of being in exile because it drove him to Jesus and it deepened his connection to him even though many of his readers have never seen him and didn't know him personally. It deepened their connection. It deepened their love for him and caused them to hope again in that future salvation that was to come. Now, again, it seems to me this joy is real. It seems to me he's not making it up. It is not doing what a lot of preachers sometimes inadvertently communicate in sermons like this. You need to fake it till you feel it. It seems to me he really has this joy. What's this joy rooted in? Go back to verse 3. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection 
was important for Peter because it was the basis in his hope for what was to come. And it was the basis because of the connection with the living Jesus that trials gave him. It was the basis for the joy that he was experiencing. And exiles um, hope in the future and joy in the present is rooted in what Jesus did in the past. In closing, I want to give you two of what I believe to be the biggest misconceptions about Christianity. One is that if you surrender yourself to Jesus Christ, all of your wildest dreams will come true. It's like voting for Pedro in that work of art movie, Napoleon Dynamite, from about 15 years ago. If you give your life to Jesus Christ, you will paddle merrily, merrily, merrily down the stream of life because life is but a dream. That's hogwash. How do I know it's hogwash? Because Peter just told us. He has told us that if you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, far from making everything smooth out, it is disruptive. It is chaotic because it removes you from being at home in a place that is decaying to being at home and living for a place that is to come. And you will operate differently and think differently than anyone else. And if you take that seriously... It is going to bring conflict into your life. That's a big misconception, the idea that Jesus makes your wildest dreams come true. Second big misconception that runs through American Christianity right now is that salvation, faith in Jesus, is something whose payoff comes later. And while there is an element of us looking ahead the experience of salvation brings our life joy here. Not to the extent that it's going to someday, but it brings us joy here. Peter has, has made that point abundantly clear to us that, that the Christian life is meant not to just have you wait till the sweet by and by, but to experience a different kind of joy here so that the life that you live right now in the flesh is more joyful, even in the midst of that disruption, than it would have been had you never met Jesus in the first place because you're no longer trying to make the world fulfill something for you that it cannot do. You won't be, you won't be bitter when you're disappointed from the world because you'll never be disappointed from the world. So what we need to do as we think about what to do with today's text is to ask ourselves on a regular basis, are we demanding from the world a satisfaction that it cannot fulfill? One of the best questions that any of us can ask as followers of Jesus is, am I expecting the world to give me a hope in the future and a joy in the present that it'll never be able to give? You say, well, how can I ever know if it is. Are you overextended financially? If you are, it's a way of saying, I need stuff that doesn't really belong to me. 
in order to have hope and joy. Are you generous with what God has given you? If, if we are not, if we tend to be misers and hoarding, it's as if we say, if I don't keep this, I cannot have hope in the future and joy in the present. How critical are you of other people? We live in a self-righteous age. We live in an age where it's easy and with no consequence to call out the faults that we view in other people. How critical are you of others? It's a way of saying, I expect you to give me a hope and a joy that you're incapable of giving me. Same thing by asking the question, how readily do you forgive? Are you a grudge holder? You're saying, I, I, I need you to bow to me in some way before I can have fulfillment in my life. You get the idea. Asking ourselves questions that lead us to decide whether or not we are putting our hope in the future and joy in the present on the back of a world that can't give it or in the resurrection rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, will let us know what we really believe. So there's just two takeaways today. Two things that are action points. Number one, if you've never given your life to Jesus as Savior and Lord, you'll never find the kind of hope and joy that Peter outlines in the text that we read today. You just won't. Eventually, it will fail you. And if you are able to go merrily, merrily, merrily through life, we all face death. And what then? Nothing. Nothing goes with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, step one, do not pass go, do not collect $200, is to give your life to Him today. But my guess is, is that the vast majority of us need to pay attention to this second takeaway or this second action point, and that is to start taking our faith seriously. Oh, we can answer all the theological questions. We can affirm the atoning death of Christ, and we can affirm the idea of a resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, but do we live in the power of that resurrection day to day in such a way that it shapes how we navigate the world and in a way that brings us a deep abiding joy regardless of what comes our way. Those are the two action points. And my prayer is that we will let this text drive us to obedience where we need to be obedient in either receiving Jesus as Savior or finally starting to take our, our lives with Christ more seriously. Let's pray.